Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Welcome to our third and final instalment of our special podcast series produced on behalf of World Rugby and which focuses on sponsorship in rugby union. Specifically, this series has supplemented the panel discussion at the World Rugby Conference and Exhibition in London in November, where panel members discussed the sponsorship pathway, Are You Sponsorship Ready? Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and in this episode, we hear from Murray Barnett, Head of Broadcast, Commercial and Marketing at World Rugby, as well as Mark Thompson, sponsor of MD, who chaired the panel discussion. We will start the podcast by catching up with Mark because while the panel focused on and discussed rights holders being sponsorship ready, there were some amazing brand side insights that Mark has collated and posted in a blog because they are very, very useful for rights holders to understand. Here's Mark. Mark, welcome back. Thanks, mate. Now, you were the chair of the panel at the World Rugby Confix 2016, which the listeners know was around the sponsorship pathway are you sponsorship ready? And there was lots of great discussion around that, but there was a number of things that brands particularly kept coming back and, and circling in on that you thought would be great to get down into a into a blog yes. and share with people because those people that are seeking sponsorship from brands, this is what brands are looking for, right? Exactly, mate. It was a it was a great it was a really good discussion. It was a um, you know solid half an hour um, chat and. Everybody on the panel was really aligned across these few things that we're about to speak about. Um, they all had their own twist on it, but essentially the message was the same. You know, we had a we had a couple of brands, an agency, a really big rights holder, sitting on the panel, and all of which are really successful in the sponsorship space and and long term success, not just yeah. one partnership. Correct. So it, this was a really um, interesting conversation and. The, the panel itself actually um, was was meant to be about how to be sponsorship ready, but it quickly turned and into one really heavily focused uh, area. I mean, it did. We did talk about love affairs at one point with Murray <laughs> Barnett. Um, how did that go? I, I actually I mentioned at the panel that I wouldn't mind being in a love affair with Murray <laughs> with how he 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 talked about spoiling his partners, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, not my thing. A bit of Barry White music in the background. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it actually sp- it spun to how to engage with and grab the interest of sponsors. So it w- it you know kind of is the core of how to be sponsorship ready. You know you've got to have all your ducks in a row, and that's the end goal because you want to be engaging and you want to be attractive to partners and stuff. And and the the topic of the the talk could have just as easily been that. And that's where the really good discussion came from. So you've distilled it down to four things that brands want to see from rights holders who are coming to them seeking sponsorship. Yeah. What was the number one? Well, the number one was probably the buzzword of the panel as well, which is authenticity. So um, all of the experts discussed authenticity as a priority. And and when we talk about authenticity, um, we talk about, you know, real alignment um, in objectives, goals, mutual benefit from a partnership occurring, um, not just somebody coming along, you know, with a, a f- sort of a fake kind of approach to say, yeah, we are a great partner for you and this is why because they've already put some preconceived ideas on papers and stuff like that. But it, it's um, the, the chat was around, you know, 
sponsorship is not philanthropy. It's a business arrangement. And for the business arrangement to be mutually beneficial, there has to be an authentic grounding um, that will, you know, always work for a, a partnership going forward. And is that just about coming to them and just being yourself? It is about coming to them and being yourself. Brands and the guys on the panel, can they said that they literally can see through those non-authentic approaches. They're, they're really good at it. Some that are dressed up as once-in-a-lifetime opportunities or this is a rare type Steak of thing. Steak knives? Mate, it, it, the interesting, you know, the brands actually know what's out there before you come to them. They know about you if you're worthwhile before you come to them. It might be that they're in a, a mode where... Um, people are coming they're they're sort of accepting proposals rather than being proactive it doesn't mean they don't know about you so when you come to them and you don't and they don't know you and you're dressing yourselves up as you know the the bee's knees then odds are that they're going to be pretty skeptical about well if these guys are the bee's knees how come i've never heard of them now i'm lucky enough to know what the next three are but i think the next the three next things that brands want to see yeah but I think that authenticity one is very much linked to the second one, which I can see is research and not preempting what they want because surely that's about coming to people and going, let's have a chat. Exactly. Doing right. your research, but let's have a chat. Yeah, mate, we, we've told a story three or four times on this podcast now. I don't know what story you're talking about yet, so I can't. Around a brand where the, the lady said that, you know, public, became publicly avail- aware that um, – they ceased their naming rights partnership, oh, a yes. major partnership yep. of, a, of, a, of a large team and she had 40 proposals through her email in a day and not one request for a coffee. And she sort of said to you, the first person to ask for a coffee, I'm going to sponsor out a principal. So, it's co- why, why do you think rights holders are so scared to go to brands sometimes and just say, look, I don't know if I can help you, but I'd love to have a coffee and, and, and see. I don't know where the conversation is going to go to because... In their head, that's most likely exactly what they're thinking, and that's authentic, isn't it? I don't know why, but um, I can presume from having sat in the seat, there's a, a level of desperation always when you're selling. Um, there's a, a, a time restriction as well and a cost restriction. People sort of sit back and think there's a, a whole heap of cash out there, in, especially in sporting rights holders, which doesn't exist generally unless you're in the high performance sector so uh, often it's the easy road um now we know that's not the right approach brands are telling us it's definitely not the right approach and the 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 days of you know coming to with a preconceived package or whatever is just totally old school now it it doesn't fly anymore if you want to be really successful in this space and and that's coming from those really successful in the market telling us that um the brand representatives on the panel just sort of talked about how many proposals they get across their desk, and and while you can you know you can sit back and go, oh, geez, it must be a lot. They're literally talking hundreds per week. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, eh? that, that's a, that's that's you know five thousand a year if you. <laughs> so so, but those people approaching brands for sponsorship mm. can't spend weeks on end researching the sponsor, yep. and they do have to do. A little bit of preempting because you know if if what you can offer is brand awareness and you know that a brand always looks for brand awareness, then there is a bit of an assumption without maybe preempting too much. Yeah. Where do they draw the line of research and preempting, but still going prepared 
and being authentic. Yeah, I think preparation and the Welsh Rugby Union on our um, one of our most recent podcasts and Sophie Morris on this panel actually discussed this point in more detail. And and that there's nothing wrong with going with a a sort of an offer in mind of what you could do for a partner, but it's not a fixed in stone. This is our package. It's, there's a subtle difference, but there is it is a big difference at the same time. You can always converse around and take things in and out if you go with that flexible, you know, conversational type approach. Like, let's have a coffee, let's talk through this, and you're prepared for the meeting. And the Welsh Rugby Union openly said, we've got it wrong a few times, we've also got it right a, a few times. And, and so, but it helps to go so you can create, start to create that, you know, vision and, and imagery around what a partnership might look like rather than just having a conversation. I, I would never just go and say, you know, hey, I'm Mark. Let's go and chat for a coffee and then you sit down and, and don't actually talk about any opportunity. <laughs> but what you're trying to do is just, you know, show you've done your research, but you've also got a pretty open mind about how that research can align with what you've got available. You've got to not cross the line into being arrogant, don't you? And saying, I know what you want and this is what you should have. It's, I'd, I'd put more put it as don't be presumptive. Yep. Yep. I used to work for a bloke who whenever we put in proposals, even though we might not want to negotiate, you go, the first time you put it in, mm. just put draft over it in massive letters in the watermark. Yeah. Because then he goes, it starts a conversation. People ask yeah. you questions. They know it's not a finalised document. It's not as, here's our position and tell us what yours is. So that might be some good advice. People have some papers that they take to a meeting. You just have big draft written across <laughs> it so that it, people know it's open for discussion. The old, the old Microsoft Word watermark. <laughs> um Number three, be able to help measure. So that, that's I like quite, the word help rather than yeah. do it. Correct. No, no, it's it's a, par- it's a partnership. But it's also the word measure is kind of scary sometimes. But, you know, we're not talking about, um, you know, measurement you know, you know, on a big scale, right? This is, this is just providing access to your brand. It's one thing that was spoken about on the, on the panel was around trust between a rights holder and a brand and trust is earned a really good way to earn trust is to help your brand see value in that partnership and we're not talking about giving them free stuff over and above we're talking about helping them drive value through what you're giving them over and above what what they may expect and a good way to do that is to help them measure their goals and their and their goals and objectives and stuff are very very broad across all your assets, but just providing the open door around, okay, we've got this available, you can come and see that, you can, you know, look at this, what's going to help you? Sometimes more is 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 better. Yep. And number four? Flexibility. Oh, that old chestnut. <laughs> Something I'm not, <laughs> physically. <laughs> um, <laughs> yoga, I hear yoga's good. I mean, I don't do it, but I just hear it's good. <laughs> it's too hard. Um, so good partnerships and successful sponsorship campaigns take time and you know, therefore, you can't just whatever you're doing in year one will be vastly different from year four. Things move all the time. Those two things, where you've got a, a fixed and set agreement, and a, but 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 a really sort of inflexible attitude, don't work now for long-term partnerships. And long-term partnerships are the lifeblood of any commercial organisation. I re- again, in, in, back to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast, I really liked their thoughts now this is this is one method but 40 percent of the partnerships are fixed 60 percent are decided year on year based on the objectives of the partner 
that's a really new age approach. I, th- I think that will be very successful for the Welsh Rugby Union. It remains to be seen. It's new, but I really, really like that. It's refreshing. I think brands will find it refreshing. It's, it, it automatically promotes collaboration, which is a, a big sort of key thing, and, and it's it's very flexible. You know, it, it forces them to not sell assets on chunk, but only use assets that are going to provide value. But it forces the the bigger meta conversation around, are your objectives still this? What do you want to achieve? Because what a lot of people would hear there is 60% of the, the assets will be figured out later on. Yep. doesn't mean that you can't copy year one into year two if that's what's working and it's working really well. 100% right, but it is a conversation you've had, right? Correct. You're talking about how what, what the corporate it's objectives choice. are. Back to point one, this is a business conversation now. This isn't philanthropy. Sponsorship is moving quickly away from being philanthropy and there are philanthropy has its own place. This sponsorship is and the advertising arm, really in my opinion, the most successful advertising activation arm for any corporate to, to use, you know, by using trusted third-party um, tools to get out into a market that they may not otherwise be able to reach. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. Leading question. <laughs> it's Is it as obvious as just being authentic, well-prepared, able to measure or help measure and be flexible? Is it that easy? No, it isn't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the fact is that most brands that I, I picked up on the panel, they suffer sponsorship proposal for fee, fatigue. You know, it, it's, it is, it's the being prepared to give them what they want um, is going to heighten your chance of, of getting through the door. It doesn't take much to stand out like that though, does it? No. This I'm, is all easy stuff for people to achieve, but it contrasts and makes you stand out. And it's what the brands want. They're telling you. Yeah. I mean, Tom Kingsley I, I said on the um, on, on the panel, he said, you know, you may get lucky that your proposal hits my inbox at the exact same time I'm looking at my email and then I'll read it. Odds are that's not going to happen because your proposal will just come and it'll move down the pile and then they say it's a generic proposal they don't recognize your name they don't know who you are it goes into the i'll look at that later basket we all know in sponsorship when you push stuff off that basket's the bin isn't it (laughs) well it becomes quickly (laughs) the round filing cabinet you know using he he suggested you know you doing your research and using not not just research around the company but finding a, a mutual connection using linkedin using your network and going hey do you know you know daniel oyston at sponsorv Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> everyone does, and uh, you know, getting an introduction through a trusted resource and and saying, and, and Tom said he's more likely to give somebody a twenty minute coffee if a friend comes to him or a trusted sort of colleague comes to him and says, "Hey, Tom, I really think it's worthwhile you sitting down with this person." That's the first step to success, right there. So it is harder; it is a longer road, but it's smarter. And it is the, you know, brains over brawn approach. And you'll have way more success in the long run. Exactly. So if people want to find out more about those four key things that brands are looking for, just head along to the website, sponsorv.net, head to the blog section, and it's all written there in its glory. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Murray Barnett is vastly experienced, having worked for more than 20 years in the global sports, television and entertainment industries. Currently, Murray is responsible for commercial, marketing and broadcast activities for the Rugby World Cup, Rugby World Sevens, HSBC World Rugby Seven Series and all World Rugby events. 
Murray was previously Vice President TV Sales and Head of International Syndication Sales with ESPN International and has also held positions at the NBA and ISL. Here's Murray. Murray Barnett, welcome to the show. Hi there, nice to be here. How long have you been the Head of Broadcast, Commercial and Marketing at World Rugby? About three and a half years. In those three and a half years, I'm guessing that most weeks aren't really the same, but how would you say that you generally structure your week and and what do you focus on regularly, including any processes or standing meetings that you use to ensure you stay on top of everything? Well, in Federation land, it's quite meeting heavy and and there's kind of a lot of sort of cross-matrixing between various different departments and functional areas. So your milestones for sort of making progress tend to be related to those meetings. So, you know, on a department level, we'll we'll have a weekly meeting. I have a a weekly meeting with with my boss, Brett Gosper. And then sort of on a slightly larger level, there's sort of Rugby World Cup meetings or Women's World Cup or whatever the event is, anything from sort of, you know, fortnightly to monthly and so you're tending to use those as kind of your stepping stones of where you need to get to. So, you know, come a Monday morning or whatever, I'm generally looking to see what we've got coming up that, that I'll need to update people on and try and, and give some structure to that. But, I mean, you're right in that no two weeks look the same. And, you know, that's one of the, the great things about the job is that there's a sort of constant evolution that's driven by the events that we've got on and then the other projects that we're, that we're looking to get started with or, or we're looking to develop afresh. As the the peak body in the world for rugby, I'm guessing that your sponsorship program and what you can offer partners is a little bit different to what uh, a national body or even a team can offer. What would you say are the core sponsor objectives that you feel World Rugby are well placed to help sponsors achieve. Well, I think every sponsor is looking to achieve something different, and, and I wouldn't say that it's vastly different if you're looking for a sponsor for a rugby club or whether you're looking for a sponsor for the Rugby World Cup. In the in the sense that you're looking to find the right partner that's going to sort of be that that, that sort of marriage of that they reflect well on your brand, if you like, and that you're able to deliver them assets which are going to uh, help them achieve their business objectives. Uh, I guess on the Rugby World Cup level, you're just dealing on a, with much bigger numbers on, on, and on a lot more global basis. And, and certainly, World Rugby doesn't spend a, a lot of money marketing itself. So we're very much looking for our sponsors to not only you know help us fund the sport but also uh, amplify it through their own messaging and if you look at the past rugby world cup whether it's we deal in real from land rover or you know uh, heineken open your world there are various different campaigns that our sponsors uh, launched which or ran during the tournament which really uh, helps to amplify not just the rugby world cup but but the sport of rugby in those or with those brands that you're partnering with and you're helping, what would you say, or, or can you give the listeners a bit of a, a lie of the land in terms of who your biggest contributing sponsors are, and and let us know how long they've been with the organisation? Yeah, our biggest single deal at the moment is with Emirates, 
and they are a partner of ours uh, for 2019 and also with the referees. They've been a partner for, I think it's four tournaments now, so you know, fairly long term. And actually, if you look at all of our uh, major sponsor partners, they've all been with us for quite a long time. And I think that that's a testament to the fact that we are offering them the right assets or the right profile that they're looking for and that they've actually found the working relationship uh, very uh, very productive and, and healthy. And I think that's something which people tend to sort of lose sight of in sponsorship is it's not about getting the acquisition. It's not about acquiring that, that new sponsor. It's about making sure that you're delivering the right value to that new sponsor. So hopefully they, they stick around. What would you say are the benefits or the inventory that you're offering those sponsors you know, in your commercial program that make up the bulk of what you offer them in their in their contracts? Is it ticketing or hospitality? Is it mostly the opportunity to just partner with World Rugby and World Cups, or is it naming rights? What what makes up the bulk? Well, I think it's the usual sponsor assets, which are kind of the most sort of tangible, if you like, which are kind of. Uh, boards, tickets, hospitality and rights to use the marks. But perhaps the one thing that sets the sport of rugby apart from, say, uh, soccer is that um, when you look at soccer, uh, sponsors tend to be buying it almost on a CPM-type basis, whereas uh, sponsors in rugby are, are, are very much looking for that affinity with the sport and the values of the sport. So when we talk to our worldwide partners currently, they all say we uh, like the association that uh, that rugby that, that our brand gets from being with with rugby, and we treat it and we we manage it in a different way than we do say the straight sort of quote unquote media buy sponsorship that we might do in certain other sports. When sponsors, or, or with the knowledge that sponsors are very attracted to world rugby because of the values and the association with the values around that brand, do you play on that much? Do you use it as a bit of a, you know, a hook to attract people or is it a bit of a byproduct? Um, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I, 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 this isn't sort of a man, the value system in rugby is not sort of something that's manufactured. It's something which is endemic to the sport and, you know, very much where the sport came from. So, this isn't something that we kind of sat down and said, uh, sort of, okay, let's invent these values and then try and, you know, market those to our sponsors. They're very uh, sort of, um, they're, they're, they're part of the foundation that the sport was built on. And in actual fact, when we did the recent rebrand, let's say recent 18 months ago now, from uh, International Rugby Board to World Rugby, one of the things we were looking at is, you know, what really defines rugby as being something different to other sports? And we came up with this kind of brand positioning of that rugby is the sport of character because rugby has these core values which are very, very unique to the sport. And therefore, that was our sort of brand positioning is that we are a sport of character. We're you know, honorable with integrity, uh, with courage uh, and you know the various other sort of core attributes around rugby. And that is definitely something where when you look specifically at some brands like their Land Rover, you know, they, they think that that reflects perfectly how they see their own brand image. And certainly when we're going into sponsor presentations, we're kind of making sure that we're transmitting those. But a lot of the time it's sponsors coming to us saying, we're already aware of these, these, these brand values that rugby has. 
we've bought into that. Now, can you just kind of tell us what the other things are we're going to get if, uh, in, in a partnership with World Rugby? And I suppose that's the, the beauty in actually living and breathing your values and making them come to life. You become attractive to partners, don't you? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time working in U.S. sports and it's it's not a criticism at all of U.S. sports because they do sports marketing brilliantly in the U.S., but it's it's very uh, commoditized kind of um, sort of uh, coming up with these marketing campaigns. I mean, we're very lucky that in the world of rugby that these brands are, uh, so these, these values are part of our core DNA and we do spend a lot of time making sure that those brands are reinforced. You know, it is the respect for your opponents and, and, and the referees. It is making sure that uh, the game is played with the right spirit because that is what makes it a unique and, and different thing. And that's not just attractive for sponsors. We believe that that's also attractive for people who want to take part in the sport um, and people who want to go and watch the sport. I'd agree 100%. Uh, Murray, are there any benefits or inventory that you have that you know could be of really great value to sponsors, but they just generally shy away from? They're not interested in activating? It's a good question. I think often with sponsors, you find that new ideas are quite difficult for them to absorb. And... My, my my personal opinion is that sponsors tend to be a little bit uh, following the herd. So, you know, one of the big buzzwords sort of around the Rugby World Cup was all the sponsors wanted sort of money can't buy promotions. And I felt that that was kind of missing the point that there were plenty of other things that they could be doing that would actually get them a lot more value than these supposed money can't buy things. But I think that's because you've got to remember that when you're um, selling television rights to a television company, at that television company, you're effectively selling it to an organization where everybody there understands how to activate the rights which they've just bought. Often with sponsorship, you've got a sponsorship manager and maybe a CEO or head of, or head of sponsorship and a CEO who are the two or three guys that have really bought into this and maybe a bit in the marketing department. The rest of the the company uh, do not have a clue about how sponsorship works. And so sometimes I think that stymies uh, sponsorship managers or marketing managers at at organizations from being terribly innovative because it's much easier to explain how a sponsorship is activated if you're following a very tried and tested method with, uh, uh, with, with with a particular sponsor property. So, yes, there are certainly some sort of unique things that we wish people would activate a bit more or or would bite a little bit more on. And probably the onus is a little bit on us to to pitch those better. But I think they also need to take a leap of faith, bearing in mind that most of them have been partners with us for a long time, that we're not trying to sort of sell them a dud, that we genuinely think we found something that would be mutually beneficial. And so sometimes I think there's that kind of taking a leap of faith together. And I think that that really plays on the strength of the relationships and then, you know, links back into your your core values that you live and breathe as a sport. Do you think that brands approach sponsorship differently at the the world rugby level than they do maybe at a tier one sport like a Premier League or a Premiership Cup or or local 
more regional competitions. Do, do you think sponsors approach their, their, their sponsorships with you differently than at other levels? I guess the answer the, the answer is sort of yes and no, really. I think yes in the sense that because more is at risk, they perhaps both throw me more resources at it, but they're also perhaps a little bit more cautious. So back, so back to your previous question, uh, the larger the sponsorship, perhaps the more difficult it is for them to try and do, try and persuade the sponsor to do something that's innovatory because they're looking at it saying, I've got too much at risk here. Um, but I also think that the core principles behind any sponsorship is are much the same, but you want to try and, you know, sweat the sponsorship asset that you've got. So uh, the core, the core principles of, of exploiting it are the same, whether you're doing sort of a local club sponsorship or whether you're doing something like the Rugby World Cup. Do you utilise your personal networks much in, in seeking out and, and attracting sponsors or is it something that, you know, you rely on an external party like maybe an agency to help you with? We definitely use agencies, but I mean, I've been doing, I've been involved in sort of the commercial world of sports and, and television for 20 plus years. So it, the, the sort of the line between what sort of personal contacts and what sort of, you know, professional knowledge is kind of somewhat blurred and the, you know, some of my my best friends are actually people that are working in the industry, and you know, you tend to rely on on them quite heavily in terms of being a good sounding board for you about different things and different ways that you want to pr- pursue um, activities. I think having an agency, bad yeah, and bad points, often we'll find that with a sponsor, that having an agency in the middle is sometimes helpful because. They don't necessarily want to say certain things to you because they're worried that you might take offence or that um, it, they're going to look stupid. And so, you know, having an intermediary that that sits in the middle once the relationship is there is is sometimes quite useful. Um, in terms of actually identifying new brands and new partners, you know, touch wood, we, we're in a, a relatively lucky position in that we haven't had to do what I would call some, you know, sort of cold calling or hardcore sales on a lot of our properties that you know there tends to be a, a fairly healthy demand amongst some strong blue chip brands that want to be involved with it and as i said before we have long-term relationships with most of our partners which i think is a testament to the successful relationship management if you like so whilst we we're always on the hunt for new uh, new partners we, we don't tend to have to be very aggressive in seeking them out when you are on the hunt for new sponsors, what's the, the, the process or the approach you take? Is it sitting down with a bit of paper and looking for opportunities or holes in your sponsorship program in terms of uh, partners from specific industries or do you sit down with a with an agency? Where do you start when you think you might want to start looking for new partners or, or filling a gap? I think you obviously have to start with what the property is and what you're looking to achieve from the sponsorship because I don't think it is as, as simple as sort of saying, oh, I need to find, you know, four top-level sponsors for the Women's World Cup. I need those at, you know, two million each. Okay, let me pull out a list of companies that I know that do that kind of level of sponsorship. It's taking that almost a bit deeper level of sort of saying, okay, is it really just the cash that I want or do I actually want brands which 
are going to help me amplify that event through the, their marketing of it? Are there goods and services which they can provide as part of that, which uh, are going to be useful in either offsetting tournament costs or actually enhancing the tournament? And so, you know, you go through this quite long process of all of these different types of things. So, I mean, just, you know, by way of example, uh, Land Rover for the Rubber Cup provided in excess of 160 vehicles that we used for a variety of different things, everything from teams to uh, ferrying VIPs around uh, through to um, sort of using them for, for very operational things. And that was an important thing where they were, were very keen to, to provide that as part of their sponsorship because it was good visibility for them and it was actually a very just useful uh, asset for us to have that we would have otherwise had to go out and uh, and pay for. So, you know, it, that's an example of where, you know, we were perhaps quite strategic about thinking, well, we really want to uh, keep Land Rover on board because that's uh, offsetting a significant tournament expense and providing a, you know, a valuable service to the, to the tournament. So there's lots of factors that you kind of get to before you even determine what's your route to market in terms of, am I going to sort of approach this direct or am I going to do it through an agency or some kind of hybrid? I mean, the, the, sort of the third way, which uh, a lot of people seem to be using at the moment, is to sort of say to an agency, we will protect X number of categories in terms of exclusivity for you to go and pursue, see how you do, uh, allowing themselves to go direct on a bunch of other categories that they perhaps feel like they've got more uh, sort of sway in or, or, or are more aware of. So there's kind of a few different models to consider even once you've got past that point of knowing what it is you actually want to get out of a particular sponsorship. Do you look for opportunities for sponsors to work together on that front? So you spoke about how Land Rover provided a, a load of vehicles to help ship people around and logistics and things like that. And then one of your other partners is DHL, which is you know, a logistics company. Do you look for opportunities to, for sponsors to, to work together on that front and activate their sponsorships, or do you just does it happen organically? Um, it, 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 it's a little bit of both. So... Obviously, we try and get the sponsors together as often as possible and try and sort of make sure that they're aware of what each other are doing for a number of different reasons. On a campaign level, if you can actually have people sort of socialize how they're going to promote their involvement with the tournament to each other, then they can start to sort of work out where they're going to fit and you don't end up with three or four marketing campaigns which are all identical. But then at a much lower level, of course, it, it makes perfect sense that if, you know, um, Land Rover needs to get six Land Rovers from, you know, London to Newcastle and for whatever reason they, they can't go on the road, they've got to be there quicker than that. Well, you know, can DHL cut them a, a great deal to be able to figure out how to freight them up to Newcastle? I mean, it's a bad example, but I think you get the point. Oh, dear. yeah, we um, get the point. Certainly... Yeah. Yeah, and certainly, you know, with somebody like Heineken, it's a given that it's in Heineken's best interest to make sure that every, you know, Land Rover function, DHL function, sausage and oil function, that there, that Heineken product was being served there and being served in the way that Heineken wants, because these are ultimately, you know, some of their best consumers, because they're all sort of trading off this same demographic. 
Once you actually have a sponsor on board, do you have any special approaches or processes or even just advice that, that you can provide to that you use to help ensure that those relationships do stay mutually beneficial for everyone? I think you've just got to spend a lot of time with them. I think when we have an onboarding process for new sponsors, which helps to kind of really articulate exactly uh, what assets that they can avail themselves of and what processes we have in place in terms of approvals, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the most valuable thing to do is actually to spend a lot of time with them. And I don't necessarily mean you know, staring at each other uh, across a boardroom, but it's trying to find different ways to spend time, whether it's, you know, going to sporting events together, whether that's spending a bit more social time together, because I found that the best conversations about what a sponsor really wants often come up, come out at the most unexpected times, because frequently when you have a sponsor in a room with their agency and you've got your activation partners on your side or a bunch of other colleagues, everybody's a little bit got their game face on and so you perhaps are not quite as open with each other about what you want to achieve. And it's only in those sort of uh, more relaxed moments that you actually understand, hey, this is something that's really important. This is something that's nice to have. You know, I know I said in the meeting that it was all really important, but I can... You know, I can kind of prioritize it for you a bit now that we're kind of, you know, just having a, a chat, just the two of us kind of thing. And I think that, you know, that's become easy for us with these long-term relationships that we've had because we have that mutual trust now. But when we have a new partner on board, I definitely try and see if there's lots of different ways to sort of spend time with them and, and really understand their business. And the other thing that, that, that we hear frequently from uh, sponsors, uh, generally people sort of, sounding off to us about how sponsorships that they've done in other sports or in other uh, competitions have not worked so well is that um, rights owners traditionally don't take the time and effort to really understand the sponsor's business. So you you really got to spend time with, for example, DHL to understand what is is in the DNA of, of DHL what, where are they looking to expand? What are their key touch points? What's their culture like? What, what are going to be the things which you can uh, work with them on, which are going to help them um, promote their Rugby World Cup partnership inside the company, which is going to make it a much more uh, tight and successful sponsorship between you. So it's definitely doing that sort of research on your partners. I think that's a, a great insight and a, a really important point for the listeners that spending time with the with the sponsors and, and providing an environment where they can be relaxed and talk more freely with you not only helps you understand them better but helps you understand the other relationships that they have with rights holders and they will from time to time no doubt share those things that they're not very happy about or how it's gone or how they're treated or the success of a particular sponsorship which I think are really, really important cues for people to take on board to ensure that they maintain a successful relationship with a sponsor. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I would add would be to say that I, we always encourage them to be completely open with us. It is that, that we can't fix what we don't know. So if there is a problem, tell us what it is and let's try and deal with it as quickly as possible because we've had situations in the past where 
people have not wanted to alert us to a particular issue that's arisen for whatever reason. It may be that they feel it's not a right that they really contractually get, but they were expecting to get. It may be that um, it's something that they feel is too trivial to mention to us, but in actual fact, it's quite important to them. There's a variety of different reasons why they uh, why they sometimes don't feel that they can do that. And I keep saying, look, you know, 24-7, uh, the, the phone is on and the email is open and, the, and the, you know, the door to the office is open. Just get in touch with us and we'll, you know, we'll tell you if we can't fix it. And at least then we both know that we've that, that we that we've kind of addressed the problem, but we certainly can't fix what we don't know. I would agree a hundred percent with that. What uh, what role do you play, World Rugby play, in measuring the success of a sponsorship? You mean in terms of reporting on behalf of sponsors, or or how we personally judge whether our sponsorship program has been successful or not? Oh. It, probably both. If you want to start with how you uh, help measure success for a sponsor and, and, and report on it and what processes you go through, and then if we then look at the other side and, and how you determine whether your, your current portfolio is successful for the organisation. So with our sponsor partners, we do sort of the fairly standard sort of TV broadcast metrics of how much visibility they they received. We also provide them with sort of dossiers of kind of this is how all of your activations looks. Here's something that you can share internally, which is you know a little video showing uh, how, what activations they did. Um, obviously, providing them all of the metrics on how many tickets that they used, uh, how successful the tournament was in general. Because often, you know, alluding to my earlier point, uh, often you need to arm the head of sponsorship or the sponsorship manager and the CEO with the tools to be able to go after the fact into their business and say, hey, weren't we clever as a business to support this? Look what it's done for our business. Look how well we activated and used it. Um, although to a certain extent, you're often sort of second-guessing it. And whilst all sponsors appreciate that information, they're all going into it for very, very different reasons. I mean, you know, MasterCard, for example, for them, it was very important to have card acceptance at most of the venues. And from memory, I think it was as much as six or seven of the venues had no uh, MasterCard accept a payment acceptance systems in their stadium. So the legacy piece for them was very important. Of Well, actually, now it's installed in those stadiums. We will have that all the time and people will be able to use MasterCard in those in those stadiums which they weren't before and they wouldn't have had the opportunity to install that if they hadn't if they hadn't been a rugby world cup uh, partner and it be a requirement of the tournament um heineken wants to be part of the conversation so they are very much about what happened around the game and so they were able to go and offer a lot of promotions to their um pubs and clubs that sort of said we're the official partner and be able to provide them sort of out of the box kits, which were able, to, uh, which were able to help promote the sale of Heineken. And because of the nature of their product, a lot of it is about being top of mind, and this helps very much to, to kind of keep them top of mind. So they all have quite different objectives. I, I, we set ourselves quite aggressive uh, financial uh, sponsorship targets, and so. In some ways, we'll know that our sponsor program has been a financial success to us 
before the t- tournament even starts because it will be whether we've you know hit those hit those numbers with our partners. But I think we also take a lot of satisfaction from the fact that six of the partners that we had in uh, in, in 2011, uh, all of them re- at the top level, all of them renewed for for 2015, and we're already four out of six uh, close to finalisation for 2019. And so that consistency suggests that we're creating a positive sponsorship relationship with those brands. So that's definitely a measure of success for us. The, the slightly more intangible one is, is you know, how much the uh, brands that we work with help us to sort of amplify the rugby message. And that, that, you know, anecdotally, we know how much some of the brands spent. So, you know, you could kind of extrapolate a media value out of that, which is certainly something that's also important to us, but it's a slightly less tangible measurement. Murray Barnett. Fantastic chat, very insightful, really appreciative of your time. If if people want to get in contact and learn more about World Rugby and maybe connect with yourself, what can they do? So um, I'm up on the website, uh, go to worldrugby.org, you'll, you'll find me somewhere there and uh, yeah, happy to, uh, happy to uh, assist anyone. Murray Barnett, thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at World Rugby. Real pleasure, thank you. Thanks again to Murray for making some time to share his insights. Very, very valuable. It was great to hear about some of the partnerships and how they are executed and also how they've evolved over a long period of time and stayed successful. If you want to connect with Murray, you'll find some details in the show notes at sponsor.net. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponsor.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponsor. And of course, you can also connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn or email using mark at sponsor.net. We hope you have enjoyed this special series focusing on rugby and sponsorship, which I think has been chock full of great advice and insights from not just rights holders, but also brands and, and particularly those with lots of experience in the industry. I know that some of the chats have been some of my favourites so far. If you aren't already, be sure to subscribe to continue to receive all of our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponsor.net and fill in the subscription form and we'll deliver the content to your inbox each and every week. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.